The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in a series on the Trinity, and we're going to look at Romans 8 tonight as a part of our series in uh, this series on the Trinity, our triune God, the mystery and wonder of the universe. And the reason we're doing this is because we want to see that the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not just merely kind of um, scholastic, academic uh, theology, studying the Bible. It's actually incredibly practical. It's written on every page of the Bible, and it's the most practical doctrine you could ever engage with. Uh, last week, we looked at how the Trinity saves us, and this week, we are looking at the Trinity and our life with God. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to read Romans 8, 1 through 17. And then I'm going to pray, and then we are going to look at this together. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh and those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all are led are by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Father, As we look at your word, Abba, Father, would you come by your spirit and set our hearts alive with your goodness in Christ that we would be confident in our lives with you. Do this by your spirit, not because we have earned it or deserve it, but because Christ has set us free and made us your sons and daughters. So it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Anxiety uh, in America affects about 18% of the population. Uh, This is clinical anxiety. So this is anxiety from phobias to panic attacks to um, 
uh, depressive anxiety. Anxiety, uh, if it affects 18% of Americans, that means it's about one in five people. Um, and that is not a, a pejorative to say like, oh, clinical, people with clinical anxiety have, have really, really, really bad problems. It's just to say, it's incredibly common. Anxiety is very common. And it, outside of just like the clinical stuff, um, you just have the, the, the regular humdrum anxiety of daily life, right? For me this last week, I was trying to set up some administrative stuff uh, coming up uh, for uh, worship at River of Grace, and I was having a little bit of some problems, and I found myself being controlled by this anxiety of not being able to figure out a problem that I couldn't handle. Anxiety happens, that's a small, minuscule anxiety. Some of you have major anxieties going on in your life, but anxiety affects all of us, and it's a part of the daily, normal part of our lives together. And anxiety, if you were to think of like a definition of it, anxiety is imagining a future or imagining a reality without God. Uh, because anxiety says God uh, cannot be involved with this, and so I imagine the most worst possible outcomes. That is not a comment on the physical part that happens with uh, the psychological aspects of panic attacks and all that, but at the heart of anxiety is imagining a, a world without God. And I think at the heart of Romans 8, we are looking at a world that is saturated with God. And so to address our lives where we could be left to our own imagination and left to our own reasoning about God and what it's like to live with God, which could be either terrifying or ambivalence, uh, God has given us Romans 8 uh, to give us a God-saturated, Trinitarian confidence in our life with God. Um, Romans 8 is Romans, the book of Romans, is often called the greatest letter ever written. And the book of Romans condenses down into chapter 8, which is called the greatest chapter of the greatest book ever written. And it's often called the greatest chapter in the Bible. John Piper has, uh, I think, seven reasons why cha Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And one of his reasons that he gives is that there is no other chapter that combines the, the intercession of the Spirit in us with the intercession of the Son for us in the service of the never-failing love of God the Father over us. Romans chapter 8 is a massive, massive chapter. And I, uh, this last week, was struggling with how to bring it together so that we can look at it in the next 30 minutes <laughs> without having our brains explode. Uh, I want to say that John Piper spent like 35, 40 sermons on chapter 8. <laughs> we are not going to do that. <laughs> we are just going to do one. And tonight we are going to be looking at these first 17 verses so that we begin to see how this Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has not only saved us, but now dwells with us in our life together with him, right? If we were to look at our series kind of header, do I have that slide up there? Uh, so we're looking at, last week we looked at salvation. Romans chapter eight, we're gonna look at our Christian life with him, right? Salvation, how we, be, how we become God's children, our Christian life, how we live as God's children. Next week we'll look at how we live as God's children together, and then we'll complete it with together on mission. We're gonna be seeing how the Trinity gives us a peculiar confidence in knowing our God. This God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are equal persons and totally divine, are one God, and they dwell with us to give us a peculiar confidence in our life with God. 
So we're going to ask, how does this triune God give us confidence, right? I'm sure you're saying like, okay, all this great talk, Mount Everest of the Bible, <laughs> how does this play out? We're going to look at verses one through four. How does this triune God give us confidence? Well, first thing we look at is Jesus liberates us. So I'm going to read verses one through four, and we're going to look at this together. There is therefore now no condemnation <coughs> for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's one of the things that's most frustrating about reading Paul is that when Paul gets into his big ideas, he starts using all these big words and kind of confusing phrases and kind of slams them all together. Right? You have Jesus liberating us from the law of sin and death by his spirit from the flesh into the spirit, all kind of like swirling back and forth. And it's like, okay, what's going down right now? And then he starts throwing in words like law in contrast to flesh and saying the law is good, but then the law is bad. So here's what's going down. Verse two, the law of the spirit of life, which is the Holy Spirit in the gospel, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what is the law of sin and death and how is it different from the law of the spirit of life? Verse three, Paul goes into telling us that God has done what the law, so when he says the law, he's talking about like the 10 commandments in the first five books of the, of the Bible, right? He is talking about the books of Moses. These are uh, the Torah, you might call them, or you might call them the Pentateuch. They are the beginning of the Bible, and it's right where God says, this is what it means to be my children, this is what it means to, to live like my holiness. And he is saying that the law that was weakened by the flesh, God has done what the law could not do. So the question that you ask is like, okay, so is the law okay or is the law not okay, right? <laughs> like the law reflects the character of God, but the law will never be a good savior to you. That's the point of what he's saying, right? The law weakened by the flesh. We could not look at the law and say, we're gonna work our way. We're gonna tie our bootstraps tighter. We're gonna work our, do our, our workout program harder and we're gonna make it work. The law is a horrible savior, not because the law is bad, but because the law, which reflects God's character, does not have the power to break sin. The law has the power to expose it, but it cannot save us. And so, you see there in verse three, what has God done? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He's done it by sending his own son. This is a reflection of one of the deep realities of the Trinity. That the Son is eternally sent of the Father. He is the, when the Father imagines the perfections of God, it, he imagines, and that image is the Son, right? He thinks about himself. This is what God is like. God sends forth the image of the Son, and that is fully God. And it's getting real kind of like, whoa, suddenly got real deep, right? The Son is eternally begotten. This is the language that theologians have used, begotten, eternally begotten means that Jesus is eternally the God, the Son, and he is sent of the Father. God looks at himself in the mirror and says, that is a beautiful picture of who God is. But it's not just a 
picture. Like, it's not just like a fake picture. It's actually God the Son. And so God the Son is eternally sent from God and then he goes on this mission in agreement with the Father. He is sent to take on a body, become Jesus, and live, see, by sending his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. So what's going on with that phrase, right? When he says, God the Son becomes incarnate. He takes on a body. Why does he have to take on a body? Well, he takes on a full body because he will come and break the power of sin by taking on our condition in our place, right? Like, if your dog does something wrong, you can't punish your cat for what your dog's done wrong, right? I mean, you could. Cats are evil. But you could, could do that. But you see, what's going on is, is Jesus takes on a body because he has to break the power of sin in our condition. And he can't do that apart from taking on our body, right? So you have in Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18, therefore he made him like his brothers in every respect. He's talking about Jesus so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to to make propitiation for the sins of his people because he himself suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Right, Jesus, he took on our condition so that he could sympathize with all of our needs, all of our weaknesses, all of our temptations, all of what it's like to breathe and hold your breath for 30 seconds, right? All of what it's like to eat a meal, to live our lives, to have all relationships like us. Jesus did all of that so that he could break the power, the full expansive power of sin over every aspect of our lives. And that's why it says, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's not that Jesus was kind of like a human being. He was fully human, but he was without sin. Because right? when Paul uses the word flesh, he's talking about a sinful body, right? a body that's racked through with sin. And what we mean by that is not just like, oh, we make wrong choices. Right? Our bodies, we have chemicals that go wrong in our heads, right? thyroids that don't work, <laughs> Organs that don't fix, that can't get fixed. Bodies that don't seem to get healed correctly. Um, we have all the, the sin, just, just it wrecks the entire material part of our body. And so Jesus took on a body, but he didn't have sin. So he was new and fresh and sinless, and he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Right? He, he came... And what he's saying, Jesus took our place to save us and liberate us. The way we often talk about um, sin or kind of becoming better these days, and especially in America, is we like to talk about like self-help. Like, I need a little bit of some help, but I really am okay. <laughs> you know, like, if you ask, like, how are you doing? The, real, the answer is, better than I deserve because I'm a total wreck and I'm a total jerk. <laughs> right? But you go to Barnes and Noble and the self-help section is just gigantic, right? You go to Amazon and the, the entries are like 20,000 deep on self-help books because we want a little bit of help, but we really want to, as especially here, good New Englanders, we can make it on our own for the most part, but um, we need a little bit of some help occasionally. What this is saying is that, no, you need, at the very core of who you are, you need a liberator, right? You need somebody who liberates you from the power of sin. We looked at that last week. Somebody who came and did all the work for us to save us 
And what this is, what Paul is doing in Romans 8 is he's turning into the Christian life and saying, the power of sin is not kind of like broken over you by how many rosary beads you pray or how many church services you go to or how many times you read your Bible. The power of sin is broken over you because you have a liberator in Jesus who has broken the power of sin over you by living a perfect life emotionally, spiritually, physically in your place. He's done everything. He sent him because we can never do it. Right? That, is, that is, when we talk about being gospel-centered, we don't just talk about the gospel just saves us and then we walk our lives out by doing it all, grunting it on our own. We live under the power of this liberating savior who was sent to save us from the wreck of sin in our lives. C.S. Lewis has this great little quote. Fallen man is not simple, simply an imperfect creature who needs improvements. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. At the heart of what our Christian lives are all about is yes, we have been liberated by Jesus from the power of sin. And then day by day, we begin to see by the spirit that we're gonna look at next, illuminated by the spirit. Oh, I've still kept, I've smuggled a few arms against God into my life. <laughs> and it's not just a few, it's about 10 or 20,000, <laughs> right? But Jesus has come to liberate us Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, which means Jesus liberates us so that we can like genuinely obey God. <laughs> We're not perfect, not always great, but every impulse to love God and respond to him and obey him, that's not something that we got by just a little bit of some help, right? Like 40% Jesus and 60% us. That's totally the power of Jesus by the Spirit, the Spirit of life, verse 2, that worked its way in us, which is why, verse 1, this whole section starts out with one of the most beautiful and life-transforming verses of the entire Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your entire identity, your last name, whatever it is, is not whatever it is. Your last name in Jesus is freed from the power of sin, freed to life in Jesus, in Christ. That is your last name if you are a Christian, which means all the identity about you is determined by him and what's true about Jesus. Right? We, this is what we call the doctrine of imputation. Right? We talk about, have you ever heard, in phrase imputation sound familiar to you? We, it's a real culture. It, it's, it means uh, what belongs to somebody else is given to, given to another. Right? That's basically the identity of what it means, or that's the nature of what imputation means. It's prevalent over culture, right? It's not just like one of these like old Bible words that has no meaning today, right? You see it all the time, especially in political conversations. Um, so somebody over here believes, you know, you know, position A, B, and C, and then somebody over here who is a terrible, horrible person <laughs> believes something similar to C, and so everything that's true about them is, oh, well, you're a bigot just like them, right? You know, you know that conversation I'm talking about, right? Like, everything is true about this horrible person. If you have anything, like, remotely close to it, it's imputed to you, right? That's the idea of imputation, right? It's used in a positive sense here <laughs> and a negative sense. Everything that's true about you, which is that we're all jerks and sinners and a wreck, right? We could do nothing to save us. That's why Jesus was sent. It's given to Jesus, and he condemned he said, no longer has power over you when he died on the cross in our place. That's what, right? It's like a marriage contract. When Jesus comes 
and he lives his life in our place. It is like a marriage contract where everything that belongs to us is given to him. All of our debts against God, all of our offenses against God, all of the ways we have doubted God, all the ways that we have emotionally been angry at God and responded in God's face and spat at him, all the ways that we have doubted God's goodness, all the ways that we've questioned whether he's real, all the things that we've said about or to our spouses or about our friends, all the ways that we've offended our friends, all the ways in which we have been a total wreck in this marriage contract with Jesus. He gets those things. Those now, those now belong to him. Right? That's, that's what he's dying for on the cross. Right? Us who have this incredible weight of sin and guilt. Jesus takes that on himself on the cross. So that now in our life with him, everything that's true about Jesus is now true with us. Jesus will never be condemned, which means you can never be condemned. If Jesus could be condemned, you could be condemned. But Jesus will never be condemned. There's nothing to condemn Jesus for. Jesus is perfect and holy and righteous and good and pure. And everything that's true about him will always be true about you in him. Right? All the ways in which he, he responded in perfect obedience. And, and one of the things I've been thinking about lately and learning is that imputation, right, this doctrine of imputation, is not just kind of like Jesus did all the good deeds as a social worker that I couldn't do, and then all those good deeds are given to me, right? That's true, but it's also true emotionally, right? All the ways in which I get anxious and I'm fearful and angry, in those same situations, Jesus responded perfectly, right? Like, Jesus never got, like, frustrated because somebody cut him off in traffic, <laughs> Right? Jesus never got angry because somebody stepped on his foot while he was walking, right? I mean, he probably asked him to stop. Jesus never lusted after somebody that was not his, right? Jesus never was jealous of anybody else's stuff or possessions or what it seems like how good their life is or anything like But now in Jesus, because we're in him, all the ways in which Jesus responded perfectly God treats you that way. God, God treats you with no condemnation. That's why this is one of the most beautiful phrases in the whole Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means it does not matter if you're having a good day or a bad day. God will give you the grace to love him and obey him and walk with him. That is incredibly practical because what we do is we tend to wake up in the morning and think, I had a horrible day yesterday. I'm in a bad mood today. God hates me. <laughs> or whatever the equation is for you. The first verse that should come to your mind in the morning when you wake up and you look at yourself in the mirror, if you look at yourself in the mirror, there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe write it on your mirror. Child of the King. <laughs> in Christ, no condemnation. Just to remind yourself in the morning no matter how horrible yesterday was, and no matter how fearful you are about today, the most practical thing that you can do is to start out by saying, it doesn't matter. Jesus, and what's true about Jesus, is the tone of my day. There is therefore now no condemnation for you. I'll make eyes and just say, there's no condemnation. 
The value of your life is not determined by what you've done or will do, by what Jesus has done. And I think in terms of how we kind of turn this into, okay, what does this mean to functionally live? One of the most important things I've ever heard is that the way we apply this is to say this. You have no right to condemn who God has redeemed. When we look at each other and engage our life together, you have no right to condemn whoever God has redeemed. You cannot look at somebody else who's, who's a believer in Jesus and say, well, she's always like that. <laughs> she always filmed the blank. He's always a jerk. <laughs> I don't even know if he's a Christian. You have no right to condemn who God has redeemed <laughs> because Jesus has set his affection on somebody. Right? We looked at it and Adam just read for us eight, Romans 8.14, right? You have no right to cast judgment on Jesus' people. <laughs> right? We can critique and say, hey, you know what? There's some sins going on. Have you thought about this? I've had these observations. What are your thoughts about this? I don't think this is appropriate. But you have no right to say, God no longer loves you. <laughs> because if they're in Jesus, Jesus has taken away all the things that would separate you and me from him. And he has now given us infinite status in no condemnation in him. So, at the end of verse 4, Paul turns and he says, for those who walk according to the Spirit. So we have, so we're seeing how at a functional level for our Christian lives, our confidence is that we are not condemned in Jesus. We have a liberator in Jesus. Jesus, the King, has liberated us so that our, that our daily lives is not determined by whatever our attitude is. It's determined by, verse one, no condemnation, and then verse four, we're gonna walk right into spirit, the spirit focuses us, focuses us because we are now redeemed and liberated and now we are focused on a mission with the spirit. You guys down with me? All right, pick up in verse five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the set the mind on the flesh is death. But the mind, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, but those for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give you life in your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So here's, I know it's a lot of verses and kind of ideas that are kind of crashing around into each other. Paul's not always really easy to follow. So here's kind of the summary of what's going on, right? If you're not in Christ, you are enslaved to your sin. If you are in Christ, bound by the Spirit, though sin remains, you strive to set your mind on the things of God, by the power of God, to live in obedience to God. That is what the Spirit does in us. Right? If you're in, 
If you're not in Christ, you are enslaved as a slave master with a chain around your neck to sin. If you are in Christ, you are filled by the Spirit to obey God. It's real, that's, that's a real stark picture of what he's going on, saying. And then at, at, at a core level, right, left to ourselves, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is nothing about your obedience that could ever get God's attention. God sovereignly looks at you and says, live. <laughs> he says, live. And by the Spirit, you come alive and you trust in Jesus. And now the Spirit focuses our minds to live according to the Spirit, to live according to God's law. I find, I don't know if you guys saw this in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, right? The mind is like a muscle that you reach out and grab and set on something. The mind flexes, and by the flesh, you can always set your mind on the things of the flesh, which are sin and death. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit? I'm sure we could kind of come up with a list of like, well, the things of the Spirit are, you know, like love and mercy and justice and goodness, self-control. You start going to the fruits of the Spirit. But what are the things of the Spirit? When Paul says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, what is he setting, saying? Reach out with your mind, with the muscles of your mind, and grab a hold of. He uses the same phrase over in Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to say, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. And I think this gets us to clarity on what the things of the Spirit are. And we impart this in words, so he's talking about the, the giving of Scripture, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by, taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is un, he is not able to understand them because he is spiritually they are spiritually discerned. What I think Paul is saying is that the things of the spirit are the things that are breathed out by the spirit, which is the Bible, <laughs> is Scripture. So when he says the things of the spirit, Paul is saying, right, the things we are the things of the spirit are taught by the spirit. The forty eight ish 50 authors of the bible were taught led by carried along by the spirit to speak and give us the word of god right this is the infallible and errant absolutely true authoritative word of god which is that rock that we can always hang on and hold on to which is true and that is what Paul is saying. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 6, as we're going to kind of put this all together. Ephesians 6, verses 15 and 16, right? I don't know if you know Ephesians 6, is where he's talking about the armor of God, right? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. He goes on to say, 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness by, given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you by with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I take on the helmet of salvation, and then he says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right. So I think if we were to kind of take all these verses and put them together, 
is that Paul is saying those who are filled by the Spirit set their mind on the Word of God and wield the things of the Spirit in service to the Spirit, putting to death our flesh, our sin, and guiding ourselves in righteousness and walking in holiness. It's, I, I know that's not like a normal thing that I usually do of like pulling all these verses together, but I think what Paul is saying is that if you're filled by the Spirit, you love the things of the Spirit, which are Scripture, to do the work of the Spirit, putting to death sin, walking in love and obedience, having the Ten Commandments written on your heart, right? That's the law of God, having it written on your heart because Jesus loved the law and he obeyed the law. And what's true about Jesus, we saw in verse one through four, is now true about you. So the Spirit comes, writes it on your heart. So the Spirit focuses our minds on the Bible, on the Word of God. Because the reality is that we live in a distracted, distracting age, don't we? I left my phone over there, but it is the most distracting thing in the universe, right? It is, I mean, it is designed, I just read a book um, about how apps in your phone are designed to make you addicted to checking them all the time, right? I, I recommend this book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, because your phone is changing you, and there's 12 ways that Tony Rinke talks about it. <laughs> it's a real simple title, but he talks about, it is uh, for right here, we are addicted to distraction. We check our sm- smartphones 81,500 times each year, or once every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives, which means you will be tempted to check your phone three times before you finish this chapter, <laughs> or finish this sermon. <laughs> we are addicted to our smartphones. And then he goes on to talk about the app. We are Facebook. The app we most often turn to for this, these hits is Facebook in 2013. 63% of Facebook users checked in daily just one year later. So 2014, that number had shot up to 7, 70%. If you check your Facebook every day, you join more than 1 billion others with the same compulsive routine. And the average user now spends 50, right, five, zero, 50 minutes every day in the Facebook product line, which is Facebook, their Facebook Messenger, Instagram, a number that continues to surge by, stri- by strategic design, right? That was 2014. <laughs> We're 2017. It's got to be worse. We are addicted to being distracted. And in a distracted world, we need more than ever, maybe, the Holy Spirit focusing our mind on the truths, on the things of the Spirit, on the truths of God, right? Because if we're left to our flesh, here's what we get. We get all of our desires, and we're just distracted by all the things that we want, right? I want you know, money, I want pleasure, I want food, <laughs> I want TV, I want more Netflix, I want whatever can I can construct to make my life happen according to my design, right? That's, modern technology is basically allowing you to create your own paradise on your own terms. And our phones are the best equipped to do that. Which is, is just a reflection of the heart that we still need to put to death by the Spirit. Now, you hear to, don't hear what I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying if you go home and watch five episodes of Netflix that you're uh, an unregenerate enemy of God. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the Spirit helps us 
to put to death the desires that make us go to all these other good things rather than they go to Jesus, right? There are infinite number of distractions that would take us away from Jesus and will take us straight to hell. But the Spirit fills our souls, gives us the word, leads our minds and our hearts to reach out and hold on to the word and put it to use. He just says over and over, I wish we could preach through Romans. I am too afraid to do it. He goes on to say, I appeal to you brothers in in chapter 12, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? Notice the spirit is involved in that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right? How do you renew your mind? Chapter 8, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Right? I think, I, I am not one to say every person must always do a devotion time in the morning. But if you find a better plan, let me know. <laughs> I'm just saying, I've been a Christian for 15-ish years. I don't know, however long I've been a Christian. The most effective way of making sure that I set my mind on the things of the Spirit is I look at God's word every morning and by his spirit, I pray that I look at it first before I look at my phone, <laughs> right? I, I need help. I find, I, it's weird. I just read this book on vacation about how our phones are caused. I know how our phones are designed to make us addicts to them, not, not just this book, another book. And yet I still find myself, I take, I've taken email off my phone. So if I don't respond to your emails, it's because I don't have email on my phone, but I still find myself in the morning waking up and wanting to see, did somebody like me? Did somebody need me? Did somebody want me? Before I look at God's word, which addresses my heart with the eternal living God. I'm sorry, none of you guys are the eternal living God. None of you will satisfy my soul. Only God, given to me by his word, will satisfy and change my soul. So guys, can we commit ourselves? Just, let's just start with like 15 minutes a day. Set your mind by the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. Just gr- grab on. If you need a plan, look, here's what, just pick up the Psalm, book of Psalms. You guys know my deep and abiding affection for the book of Psalms. Just read a Psalm a day or two, right? If you need a Bible reading plan, let's talk. There's like a million of them. Like what? version app is like fantastic, right? Uh, you can read through the book of Romans and just read through one chapter a day. And then just when you get to the chapter 16, just start over. You don't have to go to the next book. Just start over, right? Saturate yourselves in the truth of God. That is how we will be focused in putting to death our sin. And I want you to hear this. Verse 1 is still true about our measly, sorry devotion times. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know we are horrible at our prayer time. I mean, the worst question you could possibly ask anybody on their birthday is, hey, how's your prayer life, right? (laughs) How's your devotion times going? Like, that's not what gives us excitement or happiness. (laughs) We don't ever think like, oh, it's going great. I'm doing my devotions for an hour and a half, right? No. (laughs) By the way, I've never done that. Um, But no condemnation, right? So when God addresses us, he's not saying, you horrible Christians, you're not doing your devotion times. I sent my son for you, it's the least you can do. <laughs> there is therefore there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means 
Jesus' perfect devotion life, his prayer life with the Father, his enjoyment and love for the word, that is how God looks at you and responds to you. <laughs> right? We don't do this to get God's affection or make God love us more. We don't look at the Bible and say, ah, God's gonna love me more because I memorized the book of Romans. No, Jesus had it all memorized and, G and God looks at us through Jesus' perfect love and obedience to the word of God which means you have nothing but grace and life to fill and fuel your enjoyment and growth in the things of the Spirit. All right, you get how this is flowing together? The imputation of Christ comes to you now, so now God treats you like you've had a perfect devotion life your entire life, which means that we have hope and help to change us, right? So when the Spirit comes, any impulse to love the things of the Spirit, to love the truths of God, that's not you. That is the spirit working in you to take hold of the things that are freely yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, I just one book recommendation. I bought it this afternoon because I've heard so much about it. Uh, Reading the Bible Supernaturally by John Piper just came out. I can only say that John Piper's like awesome and that you should read it, but I haven't read the book, so I can just only go off of what my friends have said. But I think that it's going to be helpful for my own soul to read through it. If you want to get it and you can't afford it, let me know. It, we're going to talk about the book and the budget in a few weeks. It's in the budget. I'll buy it for you. <laughs> I want us to read about how we can enjoy God's word supernaturally focused by the Spirit. All right, we're going to pick up in verse 12 because we've looked at how the, the Son liberates us in our Christian life to walk under the free reign of grace. And that free reign of grace focuses us by the Spirit to love the things of God. And now we are going to watch how the Father motivates us for our life together with him. So verse 12 through 17, So then, brothers, and that's a plural, brothers and sisters is what it means, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right, at the heart of this passage is the doctrine of adoption, the, the reality that God has sent his son not to make us uh, blank slate citizens of his eternal kingdom, but to make us fully vested inheritors of everything that God owns, including God himself. And you only get that if you are a son or daughter of the living God. That is the full reality of the gospel, right? We get the son who pays off all of our debts and gives us everything that belongs to him, including himself. We get the spirit who gives us, reveals the mind of God and empowers us to know and love the mind of God, the truths of God. And now we have the inheritance of the full reality of the Trinity laid out before us because we are no longer slaves. We are family. In verse 15, we cry, Abba, Father. He is our good father. But I've called this section, the father motivates us. 
because if you look at verse 12, it's a bit of a weird verse. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And then he doesn't finish the sentence. <laughs> it's kind of like weird. So we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. There's not the, 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 the sentence is not completed. You see, but it's implied. You're debtors not to the flesh. You're debtors to the spirit. Right? You see, it's implied, right? Because you're no longer debt. We are debtors. Because he says we are debtors, right? So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But who are we debtors to? We are debtors of the spirit. We are debtors to the spirit. We are debtors to the Father, is I think what he would say. Which is weird, right? Because here we have, (laughs) if you're kind of tracking, you're like, okay, there's no condemnation. We're freed. We're given free grace, and we're filled by the Spirit to enjoy God's free things. And yet here we are, we are debtors. How are we debtors of grace? I think what Paul has in mind here is a bit of this logical reality, right? If you're debtors to sin, what does sin do? Sin constantly takes and destroys and kills, right? Sin will destroy us. Sin takes and destroys. That's the nature of what it means to be a debtor to sin, right? You sin, well, I think I can overcome it by doing something else to try to accommodate for what I've done. That's still sin because you're not depending on a merciful God. You're continuing to go down this path and it will lead straight to destruction. To be a debtor of grace is, I think, to see this reality. Grace is undeserved power and favor from God that comes to you and says, live and have life and depend on me. So then we take that grace and we put it to work by putting, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And what happens when we do that? <laughs> we put God's power to work and we see new things and we see new realities that we hadn't understood or seen new things about ourselves that we never thought were possibly true. The reality is that inside all of us is living a serial killer and by God's grace, we are not. Grace enables you to do what you don't deserve to be able to do. And then, I think we are debtors to grace by doing this simple action, by asking for more grace. The way you pay back grace, which is free and undeserved power from God, is to ask for more grace. Because you can't take, it's not grace if you take it and then by your own power, you kind of like grunt it out. And so, see, I deserve more grace. (laughs) You don't do, that's not the way grace works. You don't say, thank you, God, for your grace. Now I'm going to show you what I can do with that grace to earn more grace, right? That's not the way grace works. Grace comes to us freely and empowers us to live and obey God and love God. And then we say, God, if this is what you can do, give me more. (laughs) We, We pay back God by asking him for more grace. That's the way he motivates us, right? Free, unending, eternal grace to fill our souls Guys, let's go into debt with God, right? Let's just go eternally debt, indebted to God. God, give me more grace because here I am. I'm a, I'm a jerk and I've done it again. I've yelled, I've lusted, I've coveted, I've been jealous, I've been angry. I've been whatever it is that your last week has been. And God says, I know. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ask me for more grace, Put the grace to work. That's why, we, that's why 
Verse 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, right? If we are debtors to grace, to continually pay back grace by asking for more grace, the way we put to death the things of the flesh is to say, God, I confess I've done it again. Help me by your Spirit through Jesus for his glory to continue to put this to death, right? John Owen has this great phrase. John Owen, again, the guy I named my first son after, be putting, put sin to death or sin will be, what is the phrase? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, right? Sorry, I had to know what? Got a little carried away there. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That is the nature of what's going on in this life. That's where, if you're anxious, apart from all the physiological things, if you're fearful, it might be because sin's got its hold on you. <laughs> sin's killing you. Sin's got an upper hand in your life. And the way you put it to death is not to say, okay, I'm going to go to services more. I'm going to meet with Jacob. I'm going to go to extra services up a river of grace. And then I'm going to do these good deeds and God's going to love me. No, the way to put sin to death is to start out again. Verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We start with the gospel. We're empowered by the spirit from the gospel so that we receive more grace from God. Say, God, Abba, Father, help me. Help me. I am such a jerk, but you've forgiven me. Fill me again with your spirit. More grace, God. And you see what's going to happen by doing that? Is that grace is going to grow its roots deeper and deeper and deeper in your soul, or to express itself by richer and fuller and louder gratitude. God, thank you. Abba, that's, I think that's what Paul's saying, right? Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father, which is expressive. Guys, if you ever wonder why I'm raising my hands in worship and singing loud, it's because this verse is true. We cry, Abba, we've been freed, we've been motivated by the Father. God, thank you for who you are and what you've done for me. God, thank you that you haven't forgotten about me or cut me off or given up on me. Right? You see how the doctrine of Trinity, it is the most practical thing for your Christian life, right? Because you could fill in the blank for any one of these things of what you struggle with. Right? For me, I remember a few years ago, I was like, I don't struggle with fear, with fear of man. You know, the category of fear of man is thinking more about what people think about you than what God thinks about you. Right? I remember thinking, I'm like, I don't really struggle with that. And then I realized, like, I was kind of, like, couching my own, like, holiness. Like, because like, re- what I really wanted to do, for some very strange reason, was become a pastor. And so to all the pastor friends above me, I was, like, posturing and being like, oh, look, like, we had date night for the last week and a half or, you know, last three months, every week. Or, yeah, my devotion times. I've been doing my devotion times every morning. You know, like, posturing myself and, like, trying to, like, impress all these dudes that, like, they're no better than me. <laughs> they're way more godly than I am, but I realized that for me, I was realizing like, I care more about what these guys think. They are bigger in my eyes. Ed Welch wrote a book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's about this whole category. Realizing, okay, these people are more important in my heart than God's opinion of me. And so let's let's take what we're talking about for practical Christian living, right? What does this mean for the Trinity to function in that category, right? I care more about what people think about me than what God thinks about me, right? So that leaves me anxious and fearful and like processing through conversations that I have, like 
oh my gosh, did I say the wrong thing? Am I not going to be able to, you know, lead this group or do this thing or whatever because of something I said? Right? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? These like anxious, pining thoughts, or maybe it's just me. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me. I'm just self-counseling from here. Right? I realize that my happiness rests on how people think about me. Right? So here we have the son who liberates me. Right? My happiness depends on his work that he did in my place, right? He thought, he knows more about me. Jesus, you realize, Jesus knows more about your sin and the depths of your sin and how horrible you are than you do, Jesus knows all those things and he loved you to the cross and died to liberate you from the power of the grip of sin on your life that you loved. He did that to liberate you, right? The spirit exposes the idolatry by his word. I'm beginning to see, oh my gosh, I care more about people's opinion of me than God's opinion of me. The spirit exposes that by his word, but the spirit then reveals, reminds me of the gospel. Oh, right. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has known everything about me more than any of these people in front of me could ever know. Right? Okay. The spirit has revealed that to me. He shows me Jesus. I'm freely forgiven And now I come to verse 12. We are debtors to grace. Father, you know me, you love me, you save me. Now today, by your spirit, I ask for the grace to put this verse to to alive in my my life. Whatever the promise of God is, right? Maybe it's verse one. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or maybe it's one of the Psalms. The Lord reigns in the heavens putting the kingship of God over the crown of my heart rather than the love of man and your opinion of me. The practical, and that happens all in like 60 seconds, right? Like incredibly easy and it's free too, right? I'm not giving you like, like some sort of snake oil they have to buy. This is all free. It happens because the grace of God fills us by his spirit so that we are motivated by grace for change. And I'll just, we'll end, I just want to end with this one statement and then we'll, recap and be done. All of the yous in this passage, they're not individual. They're not looking at you and saying, you must do this on your own. The whole triune God's life and your life on your own. They're all plural. They're all y'alls. You could, I mean, you could, it's bad grammar, but you could write in y'alls <laughs> all through this. I'm kidding. I grew up down south too. We do this together. When he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And then verse 13, you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's talking about the congregation of Rome. He's talking to King's Cross. This liberating power of the Son, I need you to tell me. Jacob, you've been freed from the power of sin. You need me to tell you. You have been freed from the power of sin to remind us of the gospel on a daily, weekly basis. I need you to go with me to God's word. This is why we do small groups. And what we do in small groups, what do we do? We eat a meal together and we look at God's word together, right? We talk about what's going on in our lives because I need you to take me to God's word and say, this is how God's word applies to our life together, your life. Jacob, a big fat jerk, you forgot about this promise of God. You've forgotten about this truth. I need you guys to remind me, right? And then I need you to help me pray for me. Let's go to the Father together to get his grace that motivates us. Free grace that will never be done. Grace for today 
to obey God and to love what he has revealed, right? We do this together in a small group. That's why we do small groups, right? It's not because we want to add events to the calendar, right? I'm not interested in adding church, ca- church events to the calendar. This is about our basic discipleship. This is about our basic life together. It's our basic Trinitarian view of the Christian life. Right, this proactive commitment of our triune God gives us deep confidence in our life with him. Because the Son liberates us, the Spirit focuses us, the Father motivates us, we have confidence in our life with our triune God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you have shaped us and changed us by your word. Father, you have been good. And so, God, we ask now for more grace to enjoy your presence with us, to respond to your prompting by your spirit, to cry out to you. Father, fill our hearts with deeper affection for Jesus who has liberated us. Father, you have been good to us. Spirit, focus us to enjoy and love the things of God. And Jesus, continue to fill our hearts with love for you, for liberating us from the power of sin, to live in the free enjoyment as sons and daughters of the living God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.